0: Good morning. Awesome to see all of you this morning. If you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them? We'll be in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. One of the most powerful ways, just say a few words while you're turning there, one of the most powerful ways that you can testify to what Jesus Christ has done in your life is by baptism, you going through the waters of baptism shows that your trust is in Jesus. You're saying to the world, basically you're, you're, you're participating in a picture that shows the world with real water that your hope is not in your works. Your hope is not in some ceremony. Your hope is not in religious works. Your hope is in Christ and in him alone. And the reason we do it By immersion is because that picture is so clear. You are buried in the likeness of his death and you are raised in the likeness of his resurrection. I just want to encourage you, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if your confidence is in Jesus and you're clear about that and you have not been baptized, I just want to encourage you to participate with us on July 16th. Tell the world that you are are trusting in Jesus, that your faith is in him. It is one bold way to not be ashamed of what Christ has done for you. So if you want to be baptized, um, see me or one of the elders. Our information is right there. Just let us know. A brief meeting is all we ask, or a meeting with you is all we ask for so that we can make sure that you understand the gospel and baptism. And you can reach out to any one of us. Okay, our text today, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and I will read that now. The Word of God says this, a good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, Why were there former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun for protection of, the, of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked. Let's, let's pray again. Oh, Father, I pray that we, none of us here in this room, would waste this morning. Waste it by being distracted Waste it by thinking about other things. Waste it by being numb to the things of God. And Lord, I I pray that we would hear the preacher, we would hear the writer of Ecclesiastes, how you have inspired him and the wisdom that he conveys to us and that we would not consider forever what is a mere wisp of smoke or a vapor and that we would not consider a wisp of smoke what is forever forever we would not take you lightly. We would not take your word lightly. And I pray for your help this morning. I pray that you would help me to convey these truths with sincerity and with compelling force. And that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people. And I pray, Lord, I pray that you would tune our hearts to see your grace this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, one of the things I really like about iPhones, Androids might do this too, I don't know. But one thing I really like about iPhones is the way that they manage your photos. You know what I mean? Especially like on vacation. So the phone uses all that private data, like your location data. It's super creepy, right? But it uses all of that to group together all the photos that you take while you're on a trip. And then it puts them together into a collage and you just hit a button, say a button that says Yellowstone Vacation, and it will make the collage, it will show the slideshow, it will show you all these pictures that are related to the vacation. So I just saw this on my phone this week um, from a trip I took last year with my family uh, to Yellowstone National Park. It was it was pretty cool. Uh the iPhone made a button of a pick and it called it Yellowstone Vacation. I didn't name it that. It creepy. But I hit that button and we I remembered the nice time that we had together in those beautiful mountains. A collage is a bunch of seemingly random images that come together to tell one story. So the phone displayed an image of us grilling uh, out in an Airbnb in Paradise Valley, Montana, and then an image of an old faithful going off, right? And then an image of a bear walking up a mountain and then a picture of groups uh, like our friends playing pool together. All seemingly random images, but when they, brought to, when they were brought together, they told one story. They told the story of our Yellowstone vacation of 2022. Many of the verses in this passage that we just read together feel kind of random and unconnected. Oppression drives the wise into madness. Sorrow is better than laughter. The house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. They seem somewhat unconnected. But they come together in this passage to tell a story. Or, or better, they come together to teach us something important about life and about ourselves and about God. This is a collage of wisdom that is connected to each other, and when we consider them together, I think they're very helpful. They tell one story. And the story they tell us is that a Yellowstone vacation is much better than a Disney World vacation. And I know that doesn't make sense, but maybe, maybe it will. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7, 1-13 through 13 comes together to teach us something real. I, I think Yellowstone is pretty real. And it, what is real is way better than what is make-believe. Something, say, like Disney World. What is grounded in and connected to reality is far better than what is untethered to truth and to reality. Laughter, for example, when it is disconnected from what is actually going on is worse than mourning, when mourning is what is called for in that moment. That's what Ecclesiastes 7 teaches us. Yellowstone is better than Disney. And I just saved you like thousands of dollars for your next vacation, seriously. And I'm I'm from Orlando, so I I know. (laughs) The reality, the realness that all of these images are driving us towards is that life is short and death is certain and things are crooked. And these things come together to teach us that the truth that Jesus is our only hope and he is the supreme treasure to be sought and had. When we get these lessons and believe them, so many things begin to make sense about our lives. Even funerals, even suffering, even loneliness, even aging and our approaching death. I don't know. I don't know how Ecclesiastes has impacted you. Some some of you have shared things. You've sent me texts and different things, but I'm, I'm sure it hits different people in different ways. Before we dive into this, I just want to share, though, that the Lord through Ecclesiastes has been excavating my soul. It's been really good, hurtful, painful, but good. It's been so good for me to consider these massive truths about life and death, and this wisp of smoke, this vapor that is my few years on planet earth right now, this life. It has helped me to want to purge from my heart useless desires and useless pursuits and to set my focus on Jesus Christ and to live for him. I hope and pray that God would do that kind of excavating in your souls too. And I know it takes takes the spirit of God working in your heart. It takes you wanting to listen And read and hear. But friends, this is really important. Life is short. It's way too short to mess around. And Jesus is too precious and too glorious to ignore. All right, so I want to hit the collage button now and begin by looking at a few pics from the house of mourning and some contrasty statements about what is better. So look again at verse one with me. Solomon wrote, a good name is better than precious ointment and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind and the living will lay it to heart or take it to heart. Again, these might seem like random proverbs, but I think they're connected and I want to show you how. A good name is better than precious ointment. That's where he begins, right? The key to understanding that, I think, for me, helpful, is to think about what the precious ointment was all about. It's a perfume that's used to cover up natural, or maybe even unpleasant scent. At least that's what most commentators believe, and I think that's where he's going, what he's going for here. I agree with it. So think of the mean old lady who smells like flowers. Don't, don't think of a real one. Just imagine that. A mean old lady that smells like flowers. This is the precious ointment side of this. And then there's this guy who doesn't have any good smelling cologne, but he has a good name. He has a reputation for kindness, perhaps, and mercy, and holiness. Consider those two things together. The ointment on the mean lady merely covers up things, what is true. It covers up, it hides what is true. But the good name is owing to reality, do you see? And that's why it's better. The good name is tethered to what is true. In the same way, the day of death is better than the day of birth. The day of death is about actual reality. Actual reality. The day of birth, as glorious and wonderful as it is, is about potential reality. When a child is born, there is great rejoicing, as there should be. There's a new life entering into the world. A new baby, a new person made in the image of God has arrived. And it's glorious and it's good. And we should rejoice. But really, we don't know whether that little baby will grow up to be good or bad. Whether he will cause harm or he will help those in his life or her life. The joy is all in the realm of potential, right? And that's good. It's good to rejoice when a baby is born. But on the other end of that, when that child grows to be a man or a woman and then grows old and keeps that one final appointment in this life, There's nothing more to be said about potential. Everything is realized, right? There's only reality. At the point of death, what matters is how that person lived, not how he might one day live, but how he lived, whether he lived for the good of others or whether he was selfish. It's not potential anymore. It's reality. You see, in both of these pictures, it is reality that is better than what doesn't or might not accord with reality. The precious ointment might cover up meanness, The joy at a child's potential might be joy in a potential that's never realized. But a good name comes from reality. And the day of death is only what, the only thing that matters then is what happened. What was, what is, not what might be. It's Yellowstone versus Disney and Yellowstone wins. It's real. It's not make-believe. Or to use another image. I mean, just, we want to press into where I think this goes when it talks about death. Um, In this chapter, the preacher has set up funerals, the house of mourning, and death to be a guest lecturer in his speech. He believes that death has something to teach us. Solomon believes that the reality of funerals is something that we should take to heart and we should learn from. So the question to ask is, what do funerals teach us? What do funerals teach us? I actually love preaching funerals, not not in a dark or morbid way. I don't love that funerals exist. I don't love that our old enemy, death, still strikes, at least for a moment. I don't love grief. The grief I see on family members, the grief I feel myself. I I don't love the weeping or the pain, but I do love to preach at funerals. In fact, I love preaching at funerals more than preaching at weddings. You know why? It's the one time when we all get serious and consider what is really important in life. It's the one time when people from all walks of life get serious. The most flippant, jovial, distracted, alcoholic, worldly person gets sober and serious for a brief moment as he considers death, the death of a friend. And I get to stand in this place and point their hearts to eternal realities. That's what I love. Not everyone listens, not even at a funeral. Not everyone listens even at a funeral. But more people listen there than most everywhere else. Funerals themselves, though, they teach us. They teach us that there is an end. They teach us that your life does not go on forever. There is a final appointment in this life and friends, this is an appointment that you will keep. You won't even be late for this one. You cannot be. And I think it would be helpful for us to listen to the sermon that funerals preach. What funerals themselves have to say about life. The reality of death exposes so much, doesn't it? It exposes all the ways to live in this life that do not matter. Death makes plain all the ways that we live that amount to nothing in that moment. All the various paths we choose to waste our lives. You know, interestingly, there's a modern effort to cover all of that up. There has been for some time. There's a modern effort to cover up the one preacher that we need to listen to. Almost everyone wants to make a funeral a celebration. They want to pretend that the house of mourning is actually a house of feasting. I have met with so many families who are in the midst of terrible loss and what they want to do in that precious and important moment is to pretend that there is no death. There's only life. They say things to me like, Pastor, I want only upbeat music. I want your message to be positive. I want this to truly be a celebration of Uncle Joe's life, not a funeral for his death. And my response is always the same. Okay, friend, but Uncle Joe has really died. And we could cover that up with precious ointment, flowers. We can make him look like he's sleeping. We can play upbeat music. We can then go drink ourselves till we don't feel anymore. And he's still dead. And you have to wrestle with that. We try not even to listen to the most undeniable sermon that life preaches. That death is a reality for us all. It's the one sermon, friend, that we would do well to listen to. You cannot avoid your own appointment. You will keep it. And your grasp of that reality will teach you how to truly live. Life for you will be not about perfume. If you hear the sermon, futures funerals preach. It will not be about Disney. It will not be about make-believe. That's why the house of mourning, I think, is better than the house of feasting. Let me show you from a New Testament example. Listen to how one man who listened to the sermon well, that sermon, viewed his own life and even his own death in light of it. The Apostle Paul, as he faced the very real reality of his appointment coming soon, wrote this in Philippians 1, 18 through 24. He said, yes, and I will rejoice. Yeah, yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and my hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with all, full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored by my body, whether by life, Or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means more fruitful labor for me. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I mean, isn't that an amazing perspective, right? Paul wasn't playing around. There, there's no illusion that this vapor of his life, his earthly life, would last forever. He knew he would die. He knew he would die. And I love how that reality, in the context of the gospel, shaped the way he lived. Paul knew that in Christ, death was gain. Jesus Christ died and rose again, so death so that death for his people, those who look to Jesus Christ by faith, would not be ultimate loss, but in fact it would be gain. Paul would go to be with Christ. He would, he would know even as he is known. He would live in a way that his mortality had prevented thus far. In fact, Paul's mortality would give way in that moment to immortality. It's the language that Paul used in another place. That's a view of death that is distinctly within the context of the gospel. There's no other way outside of the gospel to see death as gain and for that to be true. To see death as gain and for that to be true. The only way to do that is through the gospel. There are a lot of lies that people tell and have been telling for all of human history about death. You know, your, your spirit goes to be with the ancestors, you become an angel, you get your wings, or you become a ghost, or you go and you have some beers with grandpa. There are a lot of Disney-type thoughts that we think at death. And perhaps we think them so that we might not hear the sermon that, that death preaches. But Paul had listened. And it not only shaped the way he viewed his upcoming death, but it shaped the way he viewed life. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I believe that's what Ecclesiastes is poised to do in our lives as we listen to it. That's the value of realizing that your life is a vapor. That that understanding shapes the way you view and do life as you understand that in the context of the gospel. It exposes all the useless things we do. Things like money grubbing. And selfish accumulation of stuff. And vain pursuits after pleasure and power and comfort. Death preaches that those things are vanity. And when we listen to that sermon in the context of the gospel, it aims our hearts and our minds to Jesus Christ. To the Savior who took on flesh. He was born. There was a day of his birth. And who died so that in him we might truly live. Life is no game and it doesn't last forever. I just want to ask you, friends, have you heard the sermon that death preaches? It is precisely because of that sermon that death preaches that the house of mourning is better than the house of mirth. Mirth means entertainment or feasting. You see, the the images that come from the house of mirth, they're, they're all photoshopped. They're all photoshopped. They're all make-believe. They're the world of Disney. They're designed to keep your hearts and your minds distracted from reality, disconnected from truth. I think that's what the house of mirth is all about. And the fool, as per verse four, sets his heart there. That's where he, that's where he plants his heart. Whereas the wise appreciates the house of mourning. Songs of laughter and feasting, they're not bad things, right? Solomon himself in other places commends actually everything in that list. Laughter does the heart good, like a medicine, Proverbs seventeen twenty two says. That was Solomon. So why is he so down on it here in Ecclesiastes 7? It's because they're not good things when they are not tethered to reality. Just like the mean old lady who smells like flowers. It's, it's the disconnection between reality and those veneers that look like joy. That's what Solomon is disparaging. Sorrow is better than laughter when sorrow is connected with reality. And laughter is simply a mechanism we use to take lightly what is heavy. My wife and I recently had to do the whole real estate thing. We had to find a house. And so we started looking at real estate pictures on Zillow. Have you ever done that? Pictures that agents hire photographers to do. And one thing that I learned in that process is that those images are incredibly deceptive. They make a home look awesome. And when we went to visit like the most awesome homes that we saw in these pictures, we're like, wow, that guy, the photographer, is magic. <laughs> because this place is not nice, and they look nice in those images. Images, they just don't always align with reality. I think that's the big point here. That's why, as verse 6 says, that the laughter of fools is vanity, like the crackling of thorns under a pot. I'm not sure I understand his image there, but it's vanity. They are Photoshop pics made to present life in a certain way that's not in keeping with truth. And there are several such pictures in this verse that Solomon calls out between verses 7 through 12. He calls out at least four. Greed, impatience, anger, nostalgia. All of these things, I believe, distort reality. So the reality is in verse 13. That's the true image. Who can make straight what God has made crooked? But then there's these other images that distort that truth. And let me try to help you see that. So take greed, for example. Verse 7 speaks of oppression and bribery as corrupting agents of the heart. Those are things that are motivated by what? What motivates oppression and corruption? It's motivated by greed. We oppress people because we want what they have or we don't want them to have it so we could have it. That's a distortion. It's a distortion because of what it says about God, what greed says about God, what what greed says specifically about God as our provider. If you're greedy, perhaps you haven't seen the true image of God, that it is God who provides for our needs perfectly and in his timing and in patience and anger. Same thing. Verses eight and nine. Talk of those. With other things in life, these are rooted not in trusting God's timing of, or his sovereignty over my circumstances, but in my own pride. Verse 8 the contrast between the patient, the consciousness between the patient in spirit and the proud in spirit. And I think that's the key. And patience is in my heart because I think, I think things ought to go by my timeline. I get angry with my children because I think they should do what I think they should do in that timeline. That's a proud spirit that refuses to trust God who is sovereign over all things and whose timeline is right. Impatience and anger are evidence that we're looking at a distorted picture of God. And then verse 10, nostalgia. Look at that with me. Solomon needles into this looking back. He says, say not. Why were the former days better than these? for it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Now that's an interesting thing for me. I don't know if it is for you to think about, but what's wrong with nostalgia? Like, don't we like nostalgia? Isn't it almost always used in a positive sense? We get all nostalgic, you know, as we were looking at those baby pictures. Sure, it can be a good thing, but nostalgia can be harmful for the same reason that the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting. It can be completely disconnected from reality. Friends, if your, eyes are, if your eyes are always pointed back to better days, you're not living in accord, in accord with what is true now. Reality is now. It's what God has for you today, not merely what he had for you yesterday. It was nostalgia that fueled the faithlessness, the unbelief of Israel as they wandered in the wilderness. Do you remember? Their complaints were rooted in how things used to be, or at least how they remembered them. We used to have melons and cucumbers and meat pots and leeks and garlic. And today life stinks. Would that we could go back to those days. Those days are better than these days. Oh how discouraging nostalgia is for Christians as as they endure suffering or seasons of difficulty or as we struggle with loneliness. The temptation is to look back at, 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 at days that we remember to be better and we wish that those days were our days now. We think those days are better than our days now. I have seen churches divide over nostalgia. Churches divide over this looking back. People who stare back at the former days and say things like, I wish our church was today like it was yesterday. You know, the good old days not as it is today, not with the people who make it up today or maybe the pastor that we have today. Oh, how our hearts grow discontented with life and with things like real realities like marriage and various stage of parenting and the aging process as we grow older and our bodies begin to show it. Because our eyes are stuck on some sunshiny memory of yesterday, not on what we have today. And just like the other examples, it's a photoshopped image. Nostalgia doesn't see anything but yesterday's sunshine. Have you noticed that? All the hardships, issues, and problems, they get filtered out. We don't remember those. Of course, life then was crooked like it is now. But you just filter it out. The good old days that you're looking back to, things were still wrong. Egypt, for all of its melons and meat pots and garlic, was still slavery. It was still a terrible place for Israel. So, with all those filtered images, all our Disney World make believe to distract us and lead us to waste our lives, what image is there that we can trust? You can see it in verse 13. The preacher says, consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he made crooked? So this is why mourning is better than feasting and why weeping is better than laughter and why the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. Because in looking at those things with, you know, hashtag no filter for real, we see the work of God in this world and we can then turn to him by faith, trusting in him, hoping in him, we turn to the one, the only one who will one day return and make straight what is now crooked. And he's he's going to do that. That's the ultimate answer to the deep ache of our hearts. The, the answer is not fake laughter or drummed up celebration or singing like a fool out of time. The answer is not nostalgia, wishing to go back to better times. The anger is not anger or impatience. The answer is trusting God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. The answer to the reality of your own approaching death is not distraction or denial or some vain attempt to prolong it indefinitely. It is trusting in Jesus Christ, believing in him, believing that to live is Christ and to die is gain. I think the perspective of Ecclesiastes 7 is so helpful and I'm just going to encourage you, friend, to take some time today to scroll through this collage. Take some time to consider that in 60 years, or in 40 years, or in 20 years, or, or 10, or 5, or even less, you yourself will keep your funeral appointment. How should your today look in light of that day? Don't fill it full of Disney. That won't help. Instead, turn to Jesus Christ today. Hope in Jesus with your day, with your suffering, with your mourning, with your loneliness, with your struggle for contentment, with your aging, with your church. Hope in him with your life. Hope in him for life. That's the message. Don't turn to photoshopped images. Turn to Jesus Christ. He is real. He is glorious. He is saving. He is trustworthy. He is true. And he alone gives real life. It won't be found anywhere else. Hear the message this preacher preaches. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you would give us ears to hear. I pray that the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ who took on flesh, who humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, who stood in my place and the place of your people and took on our sin. I pray that that good news would not be lost on us today. That we would turn by faith with hope to Christ. And that that faith, that hope would give us courage for what we face Today, that we wouldn't look back and long for the old days, that we wouldn't pretend that things are good when they're not, but that we would look to Christ with hope and with faith. And we would do that in all of our suffering, in all of our sorrow. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to trust in you and that you and us would be glorified as we find our joy and our hope and our life in Christ. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.